our default rate's always been way less than the national average. And the reason being is because we do a really good job of not only educating the borrower, but really putting the borrower in a position to be successful buyers. Welcome to the Get Real Podcast. Your high-octane boost of full-on reality therapy for personal, business, and investing success with your host, Ron Phillips, because somebody's got to tell it like it is. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Get Real Podcast. Ron Phillips here with Heather Marchant, and we are back with Nick Legamaro. Yes. Nick, welcome back, buddy. Thanks for having me. We waited way too long to get back on another episode here, so I'm glad you had me back. Yeah, man. The first one was great. If any of you guys didn't check out our first episode on notes, you need to go, you should like hit pause right now, go back, listen to that one, and then jump into this one because we're going to pick up where we left off, basically. We've already talked about what notes are. We've already talked about, you know, why you would want them, how it works, kind of how to become the bank and all of that good stuff. And what Nick and his company has been doing for a long, long time and all of that good stuff. So if you want to know about who Nick is and all that, we're not going to regurgitate that. Go back and listen to the last one. And then I'll give you a really good base as to what we're going to start talking about right now, which is a little bit more in depth. Heather and I both had several more... (laughs) And a lot more questions. This is funny. We were taking notes and we have all these questions for you guys based on what we want to know and, and some things that we know that you guys will want to know. And so we are going to pummel Nick with more questions now. Nick, you ready for that, man? Try to stump me. Try to stump me. <laughs> I'm sure so, you can. So don't try too hard. Okay. 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 So we, won't, question, we won't go too deep. Sorry. One question I have, I'm just jumping on in because I have, it's, this has piqued my curiosity because this is something I don't know a lot about personally. I know Ron knows more about this than I do. So I've stayed in my lane for like over a decade and doing what I do with rental properties. So how does the average person get involved in this? Well, I think that you go find somebody that's obviously has some expertise and track record and actually has done deals relative to notes and people like Ron or myself, but there's plenty of other people out there that uh, I saw somebody at the, in the back of Heather there. And I thought it was my office, but it's not. <laughs> it was funny. I, I looked at my door like, where is it? Where are they? It's like, it's, it's mail time. It's oh my goodness. <laughs> so awesome. I think it's just like anything else, just like if you wanted financial advice, you'd go find a financial advisor, right? If you wanted you need a tax advice, you seek a tax attorney or a CPA. I don't think this is any different, right? I don't think it's any different. There's just a lot of people don't know that there's even experts out there that can help them be educated on what a note is and how to really protect their ultimate investment. Yeah. And that's kind of where that's a perfect lead into what my question is, which is we started to talk about collateral, but we really didn't. Let's talk a little bit about collateral and what makes a note a good note, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think most of us got a taste of what a good note wasn't back in 2008 because the banks wrote all kinds of horrible Mm -hmm. loans. I mean, atrocious loans. And, you know, here you mentioned one of the words that everybody is scared of, which is subprime, right? Because that's where these loans were. They were grouped into the subprime kind of category. Back then they were for sure. But also, yeah, I think. But they did all kinds of crazy things that made those loans just not work. I'm I'm curious, Nick. So when you're structuring loans, you're obviously not doing them like the psycho banks did back in 2006 and 2007. So let's talk about collateral 
how you're structuring these with the collateral to protect your investment and what people should look for when they're looking for these. Yeah. So I like to use an analogy of like, you have two identical, I don't know, I'm in Texas. So I'm going to use a Ford F-150 pickup truck. Okay. Perfect. Great they're truck. Both 2000, the they're both 2015. They both have 50,000 miles on them. They're both white with brown interior. Okay? okay. On the surface, they seem to be the same. The difference is one has been maintained. The oil has been changed. Hasn't been driven in the farm using it for farm work. Doesn't have Chick-fil-A wrappers in the backseat of the car where the kids have been riding around for the last five years. The oil has been changed. There's no scratches. There's no dings in it. The paint's in pristine condition. And the other one is the opposite of it, right? Same truck. Well, notes are no different. And what I mean by that is that when you stack the file and you have the collateral, those are the things that you're looking for. Was there an application taken? Yes or no? Because that's what you want to know. Was there a credit report pulled on the borrower? Was income verified? Yes or no? Now, doesn't mean that note isn't performing, but those are sort of risks that you're going to take on wasn't stacked correctly. So those are all some of the things. Is it serviced or not, right? Is a third-party servicing company using to collect that payment on behalf of the lender? Are taxes and insurance escrowed or not? All those things, when you look at notes and you start evaluating what the price should be versus the risk, because there's risk in everything that we do, right? We just want to make sure that our risk as calculated and controlled as possible to get us the most bang for the buck. Did that make sense on how I said that? Yeah. So if, if I'm going to go out and look for a note to purchase, where should my loan to value be if I'm in a first position, right? I mean, what should I be looking for? Because well, there back again, in the crazy loan days, they were loaning people like 105% for- California, 125%. Yeah. Look, so for me personally, and everybody might have a different feel on they go, well, there's enough equity in it. I don't really care meaning the borrower has enough equity at a, say it's 80%. Well, 80% is not necessarily 80%. And here's what I mean by that. Is it an 80% LTV loan for a $100,000 house in Dallas, Texas? Or is it an 80% LTV loan for a $300,000 house in Cleveland, Ohio? Mm-hmm. Are they the same to you? They're not the same to me. I would assess that risk a little differently. Right. That's just on the surface itself. And then you start peeling back the onion a little bit. What does the borrower look like? Who do they work for? Not that all those things mean they're going to pay or not pay, but we're just trying to assess the risk. So we want to put our position in a position to protect our investment. That's really what it's about. Mm-hmm. But obviously, all those cost money, meaning if you want a perfect note, Ron, then you're going to have to pay for it. it means that if you want a note that's been performing for 10 years and at a 50% LTV, then you're probably looking at a four or five yield, Okay. Or do you want a performing note that's been performing for six months and the LTV is 90%, but the yield is 12? I mean, at that point, it's all personal choice and preference. But I think there's still certain fundamentals that I think you should look at. And when it goes, just making sure the paperwork's correct, you know, the title commitment looks clean. There's not a bunch of encumbrances. You know, what really is driving that thing? Because look, you can drive down the freeway at 120 miles an hour, not wearing a seatbelt. And it's only a problem until you crash the car, right? Yeah. Right. And that's what we're trying to prevent. The ace in the hole in all of this, though, is that we have that property as collateral. So that's the key to this whole thing, is that if the borrower does default, doesn't perform, we still have some protection on our initial investment because we have the property as collateral. That's it. Yeah. And as long as that loan was underwritten correctly, then we shouldn't have a hard time getting the majority 
of our principal, our investment back out. And I think I, I want to lead into like when we do first and second liens. Is that okay? We're talking about the yep. first and second lien of it. Absolutely. So let's use a, most stuff's not a hundred thousand dollars anymore. Let's use a $200,000 sale price of a house. Okay. What I do is that let's just say we had built that note and we wrote the note and now we have a $200,000 sales price. So most of the time, not always, depends on the situation. We're going to get 10% down. Okay. And we're going to write a mortgage note totaling $180,000, right? What I like to do is I like to take that $200,000 note and write a $200,000 purchase or sale price and write a $150,000 first. Uh, what's the difference on a $30,000 second and a $10,000 is the cash down payment. That's basically a 75% LTV first lien in this example. And then we'll take that note and then we'll sell that for basically par. So we'll sell that at $150,000. Yeah. Time out and explain what par is because not everybody knows what that is. Par is just the face value of that note, right? So Mm -hmm. if I wrote the note at, let's say, 9% interest, then I would not discount that purchase price of $150,000. And that would be the unpaid balance would be $150,000 in this example, okay? Sometimes we'll discount the note. If they'd been performing for six months when you sold the note, it would be 150000 less six months worth of payments. And you're basically selling it for what the note is worth yes. when you wrote it, right? In this example. Now, we no, might- No dis- markup is, I guess, another way to put it. No or markup. discount. Discount would be, sometimes we would sell that note maybe in the past for 140 right? Mm-hmm. But it's all relative to LTV. And where I'm going with this is that we're staying in the second lien position on these deals. So- we're writing a first, selling the first, staying in the second. And that gives our investors that are buying the notes a little bit, even additional safety and security, because first of all, they're in a 75 or 80% LTV set of 90 or 95% LTV. LTV is loan to value, right? Mm-hmm. Then the second thing is in the event of a default or something needs to happen, maybe there, we have to go protect our investment. I'm the bank in the second lien position, right? I only have a $30,000 at stake in this particular example, but I don't care if it's $30,000 or $330,000, I'm going to get my money. I always get my money and I can't get my money unless your money, because you're in the first lien position. Hmm. So you get the advantage and take advantage of all my expertise and years and years of doing these deals, even though I'm in a junior position, I have every bit as right to my 30,000 as you do your 150,000 in this example. And I'll be damned if I'm going to let somebody take my money. Just that yeah. simple. We're, I am not afraid. And I say we company, people that, I, that are in my organization, we're not afraid of default. We're not afraid of somebody slow paying, no paying us. Like we talked about earlier is that banks always get paid. They might mm-hmm. not get paid today. And I'll figure out a way to either get cash, for, give them cash for keys, do a deed in lieu of foreclosure, do a forbearance if I need to, or if I have to, worst case scenario, I'll just go foreclose on them and get my money back that way, which is very, very rarely, very rarely do do we ever have to foreclose. Because here's the beauty right now is that there's so much equity that's being built on behalf of the borrower as property values go up, Yeah. right? You can't even fall down right now and not make 20% in the last six months. Yeah. It's almost impossible, right? So if that's great for us as node investors, because the more the property value goes up, 
the lower our investment to value is. Investment to value is different than loan to value. Investment is what we pay into this. For example, you have the first lien, Ron, at $150,000. That property now goes to a $250,000 value at some time in the future. Remember, we sold it, 200, goes right. to 250. Now, what is your investment to value? Well, you can do the math on it, 150 divided by 250. Now you're at 60% investment to value. So, the, and the loan to value from the borrower's perspective is gonna be even lower than what they started out. Cause they're gonna have a little bit of a principal pay down, but really they're gonna get the appreciation of the property, which is gonna by default lower their loan to value. Hope I didn't mess that up, but. That actually made sense for me. So that's helpful. Yep. What would you say the default rate is on these loans? Let me put it this way. When the crap hit the fan in 2008, Mm-hmm. The borrowers that we underwrote and the type of borrowers we underwrite today weren't the cause of the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will tell you that. Our default rate's always been way less than the national average significantly. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is because we do a really good job of not only educating the borrower, but really putting the borrower in a position to be successful buyers. Mm-hmm. Now, we can't predict the future, neither can they. And sometimes things, life just happens and the borrowers that buy, they just can't perform because mm-hmm. something happens. But by getting a 10% down payment, we're already giving them a competitive advantage because we're not writing 110% loan at 0%. I mean, at zero money down, right? We're not right. writing a 3% FHA loan that by the time they get do their closing costs and, every, and roll all their points and everything into the note, they're upside down for the next seven years or whatever it is. We give our buyers at least a fighting chance to cure the problem. And I think that's part of it because- People will fight for five or ten thousand dollars to get coming to them. They're not going to fight to write you a check for three or four thousand. That's for sure. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. I, I can see that too. If you educate a borrower as well, I mean, they're going to un- better understand how their mm-hmm. payments impact themselves long term, which I think is really cool. I like the business model too, where the you know the second protects the first, and if if you have somebody who's actually, I know it's kind of like a marriage, right? You have somebody who's there who has your back. Because those two notes are married together. If you don't go help on the first, you get wiped out in the foreclosure. I can promise you I'm not making enough money transactionally to do this without having the note. Even though it's a small portion, I have a lot of small second liens. I give away the lion's share or sell the lion's share in the form of the first. I'm perfectly happy with it because Mm. I can't even remember. I don't think I've ever had a second note default on the stuff that I do, because we just don't let it get that far down the road. We nip it in the bud. As soon as we yeah. find out there's a problem, we go and look, we're problem solvers here. At the end of the day, we're like the fire department. We may sit around for three days without the alarm going off. <laughs> as soon as the fire alarm goes off, we got to get in the truck and get the hell out of the house because we got to go put out the fire. And yeah. otherwise you end up having the whole forest burned down. And I don't think anybody wants that. So you reminded me of another question I have. Who services these? So say I buy a note. I'm say spending $75,000 or something. You have the second. Who is the one getting me money? So that's a great question. So it depends on how the loan was originated. So mm-hmm. like everything that we originate, we always include servicing in the payment to the mm-hmm. borrower. So like people are familiar with PITI, which is principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. Well, we add the S to it, which is servicing which is paid by the borrower on the stuff that we create. And the borrower makes that payment to a third-party servicing company. And it's usually like somewhere between 30 and 35 bucks a month. And then the servicer collects that payment. That's a great point. I want to touch on this a little bit. So 
when we sell that mortgage, when we write that mortgage to our, and we sell that property to our buyer, we have a third-party servicing come in and manage that in, just like you would have a property management company yeah. uh, manage that payment, right? So let's say it's a $1,000 a month payment. The buyer or the borrower in this case makes the payment to a servicer. And depends on where the property is located. There's certainly use different servicers in different markets, depending on, because not all servicers service all 50 states. And they make that borrower makes that payment, one payment for both the first and the second lien to, and like in Texas, we use August REI. So they'll make that payment to August REI. They'll collect the thousand dollars. And then what they'll do from there is they'll take the taxes and insurance and they'll escrow it. So when Mm -hmm. it's due, they'll have the money escrowed. They'll take the say $650 a month payment that's owed to the first lien holder. They'll pay that to them. And then whatever money is owed to the second lien holder, which in mm. this situation would be us, would come to us. We don't even touch the money. It all goes to the servicer. And then the servicer controls the when that check clears. Check usually comes in the form of a check. Got to wait for it to clear. Once the check clears their account, then it goes and gets dispersed accordingly. And what about like end of year tax stuff? Do they send you end of year tax statements? Yes. And that's another reason why we like to use servicing companies mm-hmm. because- I don't have to mess with any of that. They'll send all that information. What's cool about servicers when you're when you're the bank and you have notes on their platform, you have a portal where all of this is managed on your behalf. So you can log in and see when the payment was posted, how much your unpaid balance that's still due to you, which is mm-hmm. your PB. It shows your payment history. It shows you everything that you would need to know. And if there's any reports or documents that you need, you just download them right from the portal. So mm-hmm. it's about as... Passive is passive can be in the world of real estate investing and cash flow. Okay. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. <laughs> that sounds pretty passive to me. Uh, it's it only like, becomes, yeah, I guess, I guess if you consider, what's that? Go ahead. It only becomes active if somebody doesn't pay you. And even then, there are people who handle that part of it for you as well. Yeah, let's talk here, about right? that for a second too, because you know what? Things happen, right? So let's just say a borrower isn't paying and the advantage of using a servicer. I hear this all the time from people we buy notes from and say, oh, my borrower isn't paying me. I go, what are you doing? They told me they would pay me next week when that was six months ago. That's not, you know, you got to seek expert help when it's needed. If you're not feeling well, you go to the doctor, right? If you need financial advice, you seek a financial advisor. It's no different. If you're not an expert at collections, don't be a collector. Just that simple. Yeah. You know, most of us are not cut you, out you do best. Job. Yeah. Do what you do best and figure out how to do the rest. So that's the beauty of a third-party servicing company. Now, they don't necessarily get everybody to say yes, but they go after. There's a protocol. Like on day 15, if you haven't made your payment, then you get a phone call or an email or a letter or something. And it's their job to prevent you from being 15 days late to being 150 days late, right? Because mm-hmm. we want to stay ahead of this and protect that as much as possible. And that's what they get paid. That's what the servicing fee does. So, but then we get informed as being the lender, we get notified at whatever point in the process we want to be notified. If they go 30 or 45 days late, I'm not really that concerned about it at that point in time. If they miss two payments, probably want to know because sometimes people just, you know, realtors, for example, they get paid commissions, right? They don't get paid consistently. They might be a a couple of weeks late because they get, we got to wait for their big check to come to make sure they get caught up on their bills or if you get paid Dang in a commission realtors. format. So <laughs> we don't want to overanalyze it, but I understand because I said it before, we will get paid. It's not that we won't get paid. So I don't want to jump 
too far and get panicky over something that doesn't need to be that we don't need to worry about because remember we still have the house as collateral even if we don't find out till they're a year behind it doesn't yeah. matter we still get our money at some point in time or at least the majority of it so Anyway, that's just me. I have a comfort level in doing this because most people are afraid of the unknown, fear of the unknown. I know that there's no unknown in this situation that I have to be fearful. So I just try to educate that and instill that in others that this is not a big deal. Somebody stops paying you. There's ways to cure that situation when need be. So I have lots of process questions in relation to if someone's interested. So they all kind of tie together. So I started down this road, but if someone's interested, the average person can buy notes, right? There's no like qualifier. You don't have to be an accredited investor or anything like that, right? That is correct. If the note's already created and it's already complete, it's no different than if you're going to go buy a car or a used car or whatever, right? Now, if they were going to invest into me, for example, going and buying it and then creating it, and then mm. selling it, that's a whole different discussion. And that's not what we're talking about right now. But okay. just to go buy a note, I can sell anybody a note. Anybody can buy a note. And it's just a real simple purchase sales agreement and an allonge that tra- basically transfers the ownership of the note. Because remember, it's a piece of paper, right? Yeah. It's a note as a legal document. So you need to get recorded at the county so that lien can transfer over. So that when, if I sell a note that I wrote and I sell it to you, We need to make sure that five years from now, when the note, when the bank is called, that they're calling you, not me, Mm -hmm. and that the payoff is correctly given so that the person that actually has the rights to that note can get paid in full. It's very similar to all of us who have had our mortgage notes sold and we've got to now pay a different bank. It's the same Absolutely. Maybe I closed with Chase and now another bank. That's exactly what's going on. Great point. So what's cool about what we do is that that's a little confusing a lot of times for borrowers, right? There's a hello, goodbye letter. And now you've got to, how do I know that I'm not supposed to pay you anymore and I got to pay Ron or whatever? Mm-hmm. How do I know that? Are you talking to me on the phone or you sent me a letter in the mail? Really? You know how much fraud there is that goes on in the world today and how much? Right. So, but what's cool about what we do, if we are able to get the note in the system from the beginning, guess what? It's already set up from the beginning. And when I sell the first note, for example, to Ron, and it was written and the payment is being paid to August REI in his example, it doesn't matter. That's an internal transaction that the borrower never sees. They're going to continue to make the thousand dollar. What's that? I'm sorry. Because they're paying the same servicer. They're paying the same servicer. Hmm. They're paying the same servicer. So the only time it becomes an issue is when Ron doesn't like August REI anymore and he wants to change it over to FCI. And then you got to do a hello, goodbye letter at that point. Because most banks, they service their own paper because they have so much of it, right? So they have their own servicing. That's why you make your payment to Wells Fargo or you make your payment to Chase or Bank uh-huh. of America. That doesn't ever change. And they have their, they have the economies of scale and they have all the infrastructure to do that because, hey, you got a 100,000 notes under, under, under management and you're making 35 bucks a pop or not paying it out. Yeah. It's a lot of money. So, but that's the beauty of what, when we do it is that it never changes. So we don't have to worry about the borrower getting confused and worrying about that not getting processed. Yeah. Similar to property management, right? Like when our clients buy from us, typically the same property managers already managing it. And then our client purchases, there's no different, right? So I get that. Okay. So, um, so much easier not to upset the apple cart, right? Yeah. Just leave it where it is. 
Exactly. Another question I have is, so say I'm interested in buying a note. I sign that contract or the, what did you call it? Technically it's called a mortgage loan sale agreement, MLSA. Then that's basically what it is. It just, it's like a transfer of ownership document is what it is. So then I have some time for due diligence, right? Yes. How much time do we have? So this is, it's a little bit different than buying a property. When you go buy a property, you usually put in earnest money or deposit or something some financial consideration to control that deal until you do whatever your inspections or whatever it is that you need to do. On notes, it's not quite that same, not the same. What we do is that what usually happens is that there's what's called an indicative bid. An indicative bid is basically the offer is made to buy that asset for a predetermined price. And then if that's agreed upon, then there's a inspection period of that collateral file, which is- All the due diligence could be the RMLO package, which is the the underwriting file that gets done. It could be the servicing records from the note. Maybe it's been serviced for two years and you want to go back and check all the payment history and the notes on the file. That's there. You want to look at the updated title commitment. All that stuff can be done. We already have the file there, but just because it's right for me doesn't mean it's right for you. And we want to make sure that you understand what it is that you're purchasing and make sure the documentation is to your satisfaction, which it is because when we do all this stuff, our first intent is that we're going to keep it forever. So we write it as we're going to keep it forever. And we're going to stack the file as we're going to keep it forever, even though that it could very likely get sold. If 80% of it gets sold of what we create, I don't know which 80 is going to go and which 20 is not. So we just write it that way. So tell us what due diligence looks like for someone who's wanting to buy a note. You'd mentioned they have a certain period of time. Yeah. Well, so an indicative bid is the offer basically. Okay. But there's no financial consideration or deposits made. It's just like, I am agreeing to buy your note for this price. We say, we agree on that. And we say, okay, we agree to the price. Now I'm going to give you all the documents and collateral files for that note to verify that it is what I say that it is. And you're going to mm-hmm. get somewhere between, you know, five, maybe 10 days to basically do your own due diligence. Maybe you want to pull an updated title commitment. Maybe you want to review the servicing records for the last two years and see the the consistency of the payment made by the borrower. Maybe you want to go call for a, a private BPO, a broker price opinion, because I wrote this note three years ago and you want to know what the actual value is today. Mm-hmm. Did it actually go up or did it go down in value? Yeah. You may want to call for you're probably not going to get in the house to take pictures, but you maybe want somebody to drive by because the house is in Texas and you're in South Carolina. Maybe you want to call somebody to go take updated pictures. You want to yeah. get a view of the neighborhood. Those are all parts of the things of the due diligence process that most people want to look at and do. But there again, it also is a relative to what your investment, the value is, what the loan, the value is on the property. And those are things that I would personally do because I don't know I know what it is when I did it, but if I'm selling to you, I could tell you what I did, but you Mm -hmm. don't really know unless you verify it yourself. And I don't want to ever think anybody doesn't have that ability to trust and verify. Really, that's really what it boils down to. What's a non-starter for someone who comes to you and wants you to lend them money? So the actual homeowner, what's a non-starter? Like what credit score or what background? I'm just curious where you don't play. That's a good question. So- as a small cap lender, which you can figure out what a small cap lender, it's a, it's a huge number. It's like $500 million or 500 transactions a year or something. As a small cap lender, 
the only thing that we're required to do, according to Dodd-Frank, is verify the borrowers who they say they are and prove they have the financial capacity to make that monthly payment. That's okay. it. The okay. DTI, which is the debt to income ratio, is not a factor. I got to look at it, but I don't want, it's not a black or white number. It's not like a traditional credit score, same difference, right? Whether they're self-employed or not is not important. Those are the main things. So we try to, to follow those best business practices the banks have. But you know what? Perfect example, this house that I told you about in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even tell you I haven't sold the thing yet. The neighbor from the house that I'm buying the house from calls me when they're moving out of the house and she goes, hey, I'm interested in this house. I go, mm-hmm. okay, good. Well, I'm going to be selling it and I'm going to sell it on seller financing. And she goes, oh, good. We need, we, we need help with seller financing. I go, what's your situation? She goes, well, we're sort of self-employed and whatnot. I go, okay. She goes, why do you want to buy the house if you own the one right next door? She goes, we own this one free and clear. We want a smaller house that's next door and we're going to make this one a rental. Me gives two rips about what their credit score is or what their DTI is or how they make their money relative to the fact that I've got a free and clear house sitting right next door that I can use as collateral to protect the the loan. I'd much rather have that than than to tell me that they work for Amazon and get paid a W-2 paycheck every two weeks. I mean, I'm not an idiot. Yeah, I have much more control and leverage, but banks don't see it that way. Nope. Traditional banks don't see it that way. Even, even, if the, even if the loan officer sees it, there's nothing they can do about it Can't because they have, a, about they have a box they have to play in and that's that's really it, you know? Yeah. And that's our advantage. That's our advantage to take, I don't say take advantage of it, but that's our competitive advantage over a traditional lender. And that's why we're able to, to do what we do. That just so happened to happen that way. But a lot of times, but look, you can go look at the underwriting files and most of the time, the credit scores are fine. They're not great credit scores. They're, you know, maybe 600, 625, but they're hardworking people and they just need a chance. And if I get them at the right LTV, if somebody scratches a check for $20,000 on a $200,000 house that makes $15 an hour, yeah, that's a significant contribution. Yep. I'm willing to go to bat for them and take, and take a chance on them as a lender versus well, they've FHA. Proven they can, they can, they've proven they can save their money. Yeah. Right. Yes. I mean, absolutely. That's the problem that we had before. It wasn't the the nature of the loans. It was they were letting people in with zero dollars. They have no, nothing to lose. They there's have no skin in the game. Yeah. yeah. Skin in the game. Really good point. And they haven't been able to prove that they've been solid with their money because anybody can put zero dollars down. I mean, literally anybody can do that, right? So, hope that answers the question on that one. Yeah, no, that's great. I think we should follow up this episode with a live Q&A that we host in our Facebook group to have our clients be able to ask questions because I've asked all of my main ones, Ron. I don't know if you have any others you wanted to no, ask. No, I don't. But then again, I like you said, I, I do have a general understanding of notes. And so I, I probably am missing some things that people would want to ask. And so I agree with you. I think we should do that. Let's give it a couple of weeks, let people get their minds wrapped around what we've explained to them and then come with some questions and then we can jump on and do a 30 minute Q&A rapid fire with Nick and uh, we'll go from there. Man, Nick, this was great. Yeah, I mean, Heather. Well, and I, I got- think the advantage that I have talking about this is, is this is what I do all day, every day, right? Mm-hmm. I write notes for my own consumption, for my family's consumption and for everybody else's because I can't keep everything because if I know... It's funny. It pains me every time I say this out loud. But if I knew today what I 
if I knew 500 notes ago, what I know today, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now because my partner, John Montero, myself, he's brilliant. I mean, he's got a master's in economics. The guy understands the financial side of the business model, right? But if we would have done what we're doing right now with this whole first and second lien, and it was a transactional model for like four or 500 notes. And we made a lot of money doing it, but it was all transactional. We didn't get to keep any of that stuff. So I'd rather keep a little bit of something than 100% of nothing. And I'm willing to give give that opportunity to somebody else. But now that's why I'm going to stay in this game. And and, oh my goodness, just the stuff that I know that just, I just, if I would have just been able to do things in a more efficient manner that we know now, we would have been so much ahead of the game, but that's my loss as everybody else's gain and benefit now. And well, I think it's a win-win for everybody that gets in, involved and help like, and whether they get stuff from us or not, and I don't really care. I just want to educate people on notes that they're available to buy and how to get them if they want them, because you're not going to find it on, you're not going to find it on TV. You, know, you can probably yeah. find it on the internet. There's a lot of people that talk about it, but I've created these myself. I'm not a broker as Eddie Speed calls them broker jokers, right? That's somebody that goes and finds a note and then, you know, tries to figure out how to, how to, you know, be the wizard of Oz with behind the curtain and try to squeeze out a few bucks. Not what we do. We actually want to take the stuff down. Even the stuff that we sell, we like to take it down and bring it in house and make sure that it actually does perform the way the seller told us it did before we turn around, put our stamp of approval and then go sell it somebody because that's important yeah, like to, that. to do it and it takes time and takes money. It might cost a, the the note buyer in the end, maybe a point or two, but it, it gives them a little bit more sense of security that, um, you know what, I could have taken the risk and made 2% more on the yield. I'll take six instead of eight. And knowing that, that it's a pretty, it's a pretty secure investment and, and most people are okay with that. Yeah. I like that. Well, Nick, thank you, man. Thank you so much for spending more time than most. We've had two segments with you, so this is <laughs> this is fantastic. I think everybody got a, a tremendous amount out of it. I'm sure we'll have some people interested uh, in more information. Heather, where do they go again? So go to invest at rpcinvest.com. And if you want to join that Facebook group in order to see the live, just let us know your email address associated with your Facebook account. And we'll send an invitation over to, cause you have to be added into the group. It's not an open group for anyone to join. But There's rules. There are rules. There's <laughs> rules to the group. So, um, and then you can share questions that you have that you want us to cover, especially if you can't attend live. We have a lot of clients send in their questions as well. So. Yep. Nick, thanks, buddy. Have a fantastic week. Thank you. Looking forward to doing it again. Hey, till next time, everybody, get out there, make something happen. This has been the Get Real Podcast. To subscribe and for more information, including a list of all episodes, go to getrealestatesuccess.com.